Hello and welcome to NG Meets. This week we're blasting off into space with special guest Michael Merrifield. Uh, Michael is a professor of astronomy at the University of Nottingham and he joined us to talk all about the field of astronomy, uh, his work within the field and at the university. And we also had a chat obviously about how the coronavirus lockdown has affected the university, what that might mean going forward. And uh, we even had a little bit of a chat about aliens, or at least life uh, in the universe. This is a fantastic chat. Uh, it's, oh, you know, astronomy is a fantastic subject, a thrilling, fascinating subject, and uh, sort of staggering things. And it was great to talk about some of the work he's doing, uh, including his involvement in the Extremely Large Telescope project, which you'll find out more of. We do touch on the whole concept of uh, acronyms in science, which I always find fascinating. Um, much, much more, and we have a chat as well about social media. Mike is a uh, quite a pro- proficient Twitter user, and often engages in uh, entertaining discussions on there, particularly with a local former MEP. That's something that crops up in the episode. So it was great to chat to Michael. I'm uh, fascinated by science and astronomy, so I love this episode and really enjoyed talking to him. Uh, and as I really enjoyed talking about, obviously. Um, how the university have dealt with everything that's happened over the weeks. We've had lots of different guests on. It's been fascinating to talk to different people from different uh, um, areas and different industries and businesses and community groups about what impact the lockdown has had, how they've adapted, how people have within those communities have adapted. And it's very interesting to see, obviously, despite this being something that's affecting everyone, it's affecting everyone in very different ways. Uh, and obviously the day we were talking about this was actually the day that the A-level results were released in England and we saw the uh, absolute mess that was made of them. Uh, that comes up briefly in the conversation at the time. Obviously, we didn't know about the U-turn. Uh, uh, Mike has actually talked about his thoughts on what Scotland did then, which was a similar thing, and the impact that potentially has on at universities but also on you know the uh the what sort of way that the these qualifications will perceive devaluing them as i'm trying to think of the word i was trying to think of there that's an interesting take we've seen a lot obviously it's, it's very complex situation very unusual time uh but there you go we've all seen what the what has happened and same thing i believe is going to happen with the gcse's that are due out this week um so again Fascinating chat. I really hope you enjoyed this. Hope you've been checking out some of our recent episodes. We've had some fantastic discussions with people over recent weeks from all sorts of areas. And uh, we've got more lined up. So be sure to check us out, obviously, ngdigital.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as ever, you can find us on social media, facebook.com forward slash ngdigital or at ngdigitaluk on Twitter. So uh, I'll be back at the end of the show with some information on next week's guest. But for now, this is NG Meets Michael Merrifield.
Good afternoon. My guest today is Mike Merrifield, who is a Professor of Astronomy at the University of Nottingham. So first of all, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon, Mike. My pleasure. And uh, if we want to just kick things off, I know we've got quite a lot to talk about, but if you just want to tell a little bit to our audience of, uh, of what being Professor of Astronomy means, what it, what it is that you sort of cover and work on. I guess, as with most people, being a professor of astronomy involves a lot of sitting around in front of computer screens. In fact, even before we were in lockdown, it involved sitting around in front of a lot of computer screens. Um, but essentially, so I've been in Nottingham for a little over 20 years now. Um, and actually, when I came, I came to, to be professor of astronomy at the university, there was no astronomy in the physics department as it then was they decided that they wanted to expand their research a bit and looking for new directions to, to, to start doing research. Um, and astronomy is sort of attractive to physics departments. I think it's a couple of reasons. Firstly, because uh, undergraduates really like it. And so it's actually a, something which is an attractive thing to be able to bring students in to say, there's you know, research in astronomy and we talk some astronomy by we of astronomers. Um, and to be honest, the other reason the physics department like astronomers is because we're cheap in that in physics departments, you know, if you bring in an experimental physicist, they want a lab and you need lots of very expensive kit in the lab. And so actually setting up a new research group in, in kind of mainstream experimental physics is a very expensive undertaking. Astronomers, I mean, we do use expensive equipment, but it's all kind of scattered around the world and it's all national and international facilities. So actually we're not a drain on our department, our university, um, because we don't, the resources we need are available elsewhere in the world. They're not something that the individual university has to invest in. So although the University of Nottingham has a few telescopes on the roof, they really are just for training undergraduates. The real research work uh, gets done in exotic locations like Chile and Hawaii and the Canary Islands. Um, and so actually that's why physics departments are quite keen to expand into astronomy. So yeah, about 20 years ago, they decided they were going to do this. I was lucky enough to get appointed to kind of run the new group and I set it up um, and brought in other colleagues. And so it's actually now about, I guess it's about 10 staff, so 10 academic staff, probably about another five or six researchers and about 20 students. So it's we're getting on for 40 people in, in the group. Um, and uh, yeah, so we undertake research, pretty wide range of areas, all to do with the formation and evolution of galaxies. So some of my colleagues look at uh, simulating galaxies and computers. Um, some look at galaxies in the very distant universe and take advantage of the fact that when you're looking things a long way away, because the light's taken a long time to get to us, you're looking at them as they were in the past, so they can kind of see how galaxies have changed over the lifetime of the universe. And then there's people like me who look at more nearby galaxies, and if you like, try and do the archaeology, try to unpick why they ended up looking the way they are on the basis of what we can see of them today. Wow, excellent. I guess astronomy in particular, because obviously uh, physics is, you know, a, an extremely complicated uh, subject, but there's that thing that astronomy has is that, you know, it could be that sort of built into the whole, the fantasy of it all and the imagination of it all, because like you say, just that whole idea that you're looking back in time is, you know, it's fantastic and amazing. It sounds so science fiction like but it's actually what was actually going on out there and you know just anything that involved I guess space and exploring where we came from. Um, I think it helps a lot of it's really beautiful too right? there's a lot of I mean you know the, the galaxies that we get to take pictures of are gorgeous looking things so spiral structure yeah. and beautiful 
um, um, appearance of them, the colors, the structure and so on. I think that's probably why we end up, you know, it's, it's amazing how often astronomy ends up in the news, right? Out of all proportion to the amount, you know, there's research going on across huge numbers of different scientific areas, right? But astronomy gets into the news far more often than in proportion to the amount of stuff that's going on. And I think it's partly just because, you know, uh, that actually it is fascinating, this, you know, exploring our origins and those kinds of things, but also it helps that there are good visuals that go along yeah. with it. So we always end up with pretty pictures too. Yeah, and, and often it's so weird. I mean, Absolutely. You know, no, no, it's very non-intuitive stuff. And yeah, the, I mean, you know, the huge numbers we end up throwing around about distances and the masses of things and the size <laughs> of the things that actually are, are so mind-blowing that it's just nice to be able to, you know, to, to, to sort of occasionally take that step back and think about these truly bizarre things. Yeah, um, weirdly, I was looking at a, a link uh, a couple of days ago, which I think was from the ESA, to their page about exoplanets. Mm-hmm. And on that, they had sort of they had a, collect, a selection of uh, some of the, I guess, the, the key exoplanets because obviously there's, there's thousands that have been discovered. But in it, there's a little sort of explanation about that exoplanet, you know, whether it was gas, whether it was where its position was, and, and but then they also showed like how far away it was and like how many billions of years it would take to get there by like train or even <laughs> even light speed was still like you know, three million years at light speed to the closest. So like you said, the, the sizes are staggering. It's, it's almost difficult to imagine that we can spot them at all. Um, and the fascinating thing is, I mean, the other attraction for me of astronomy is, you know, when I start, I, so I guess I started my research career in astronomy in the late 1980s. At that point, we didn't know about any exoplanets at all. The only planets we knew about were the ones in our own solar system. And so this entire field of astronomy has developed over the course of my career. And it's just great to be in a subject where things change that fast, where our understanding of the universe around us is really evolving so rapidly that actually there's always more and new interesting things to learn. Yeah, I mean, we, we get to a point where, you know, some planets, as they were, get relegated. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Pluto's gone. Yeah. So, so, like you said there, obviously, it's a very fast-moving field, although... I guess in some ways there are other areas of it that that don't move, <laughs> you know, because again, and a lot of it is going to be tech, the technology improvements, which we've seen all the time. So how has it sort of changed in your time there, particularly with obviously the advances in computers and the internet and things like that have obviously made a, must have made a huge difference to the field. Enormous, even, even things like, so the, the, one of the big step changes in astronomy was when we started using digital detectors to record the light with. So just basically similar to the kind of detectors that are in the back of everyone's camera these days. Because of course, before that, you use photographic film or actually mostly in astronomy, photographic plates are big pieces of glass. Um, and I had the good fortune to just miss the photographic era because actually it was you know, getting, getting these photographs was incredibly hard work. And photographic plates are incredibly inefficient, so they would record about 1% of the light that they actually receive. Whereas a modern digital detector will record about 80, 90% of the light. So just by that change of detector, suddenly telescopes became you know, 40, 50 times more efficient than they were in the past. And we were able to see far fainter things that had never been seen before. It's always the driver in astronomy. To, you know, the, the problem with astronomy, people tend to think telescopes can make things bigger. But in large part, they're not, but right? in large part, the point of a telescope is to collect more light because telescopes are, you know, the objects we're looking at are incredibly faint and you just want to collect as much light as you can. 
And so, for example, one of the galaxies I, I studied quite a bit, uh, the Andromeda galaxy, one of our nearby neighbors, is actually about 10 times the diameter of the full moon. So it's huge on the sky. But of course, when you go out there, look, you don't see it just because it's very, very faint. If you go somewhere really dark, you can just about make out the bright bits in the middle of it, but you don't see most of the galaxy. So when I point a telescope at it, the last thing I'm trying to do is make it any bigger. It's already <laughs> quite big enough. It's really getting enough light to see those faint properties. And that means, and so in terms of the, the detective, as I say, with this huge step change when we went from taking photographs to taking digital images, but really, you know, with the, with the efficiency of those detectors, that's as far as we can go. Right? You can never get more than 100% efficient, and we're at like 80, 90% efficient now. So very little more headroom there. So now the big driver is making bigger telescopes. Yeah. The way to kind of collect more light, just as a bigger bucket to get more light in. And so I'm one of the, my big uh, areas of work at the moment is I, I am chairing the UK's involvement in a thing called the ELT, which is the Extremely Large Telescope. Um, which is a telescope currently getting built in Chile, where it'll be uh, about 39 meters in diameter. So to put that in perspective, the largest telescopes we're using at the moment are about eight or 10 meters in diameter. So this is about four times as big across. Um, to give a sort of sense of the scale of it, we've been uh, doing dealing with the contra contractors to actually build bits of it. The contractors. Uh, the contractor who won the contract to build the dome, the main enclosure, the thing the telescope's actually in, the main thing they do is build sports stadium. Because <laughs> that's kind of the size of the telescope that we're building now, is the, the, the single telescope is kind of the size of the sports stadium. But when that's built, you know, we're going to be able to see far fainter, far further, far smaller things than we've ever seen before. Um, so it's going to be absolutely fascinating when that comes online, probably in about this thing now it's been a little delayed because of covid yeah. but we're probably talking about five or six years time we'll start collecting data in it. pretty exciting stuff uh, oh, absolutely yeah excellent. yes um, yeah, you'll have to forgive the really boring name though the elt the extremely large telescope is not the most exciting name i've always wondered because um when, whenever you read any you know any sort of uh, scientific article or book and particularly anything relating to sort of you know, the work NASA or ESA are doing. And they have always got these names for the satellites or the studies. And I always, it always, you always get the sense that they came up with the acronym and then they've come up with a name to fit in it because they've always got names like, you know, Sky or they, they've got these really appropriate names. And then when you work, the acronym is like a really complex, where it yeah. really feels like they've come up with the words that fit the name they wanted to, to give it. Well, I should say before before we ended up with this ELT project, there was a there was a, a precursor project. We were trying to be so the ELT is going to be about thirty nine meters in diameter. Before that, we were actually planning on building a telescope one hundred meters in diameter, so a really huge telescope, and that actually had the best acronym of any project I've ever been involved with. It was going to be called OWL, which stood for the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope, which was <laughs> such a brilliant acronym. So yeah. that, and that was really the case where yeah, definitely come up with the acronym first, then decide what the project's going to be. Yeah, uh, but actually we decided. Sorry, go ahead. So that at least that is like even when you read the what the acronym stands for, at least it's quite obvious. Sometimes you're like, "What's that word?" <laughs> I mean, I know yeah. obviously one of the that's one of the difficulties in anything like that is obviously technical terms, but you don't you definitely feel like they've had to to find like a a really obscure technical word that fits just so they can keep you know, like Lisa or something as the acronym. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes you end up using the second and third letters of the word just yeah. to, <laughs> to try and make the whole thing work. Yeah. 
Yeah, you'll see that where it goes, like the, the, the acronym will be like capital small, capital yeah. K. Yeah. yeah. Um, so like, so there obviously collaboration is, is huge, as, you, as you've mentioned in your field, and it, I guess without it, it would be almost impossible, particularly financially and, yeah. and things like that. And it's, it's quite staggering when you look at things that are going on in the world, how well science continues to collaborate. You know, I mean, we see this, Take, you know, when you look at the space program at the moment and the uh, International Space Station and the fact that, you know, Russia and America um, work so well together on that when even when politically and, uh, you know, maybe it's a bit different now, <laughs> but politically they're often at loggerheads. Um, I mean, I guess there's a long history of it, right? Even when the Cold War was pretty much at its height, there was, you know, after the Apollo the moon landings you know there was apollo soyuz where the the americans and the and the then soviets actually joined up docked their spacecraft in space so even back in the 1970s there was significant collaboration and there've always been you know again in during the cold war there was lots of scientific collaboration for example between physicists you know across the iron curtain so there's always has been that kind of international aspect to research and in astronomy, it has a very long history in that, for example, there was a, a you know, in the, the beginning of the 19th century, there was a big project to uh, look at the, the sky all across, you know, the entire sky, observe the entire sky. And of course, you can't do that from one country because you, know, you can see the northern sky from here, but if you want to see the southern sky as well, you've got to go down to the southern hemisphere. So there was, even then, there was a lot of collaboration between different countries um, to try and get that kind of global view of things. Um, so I think science has been quite good from that perspective and, and astronomy in particular in terms of pulling international projects together. Although, as you say, one of the big drivers now is the cost. So this big telescope we're building, the ELT, the total cost is in excess of a billion pounds. And it's not the kind of thing that any single country can think of doing. So you really need to pull together a collaboration of different countries so that between them they can afford to build it. Yes, especially at times now where um, everything, anything like that is really scrutinised and, you know, on a public platform, not just within, you know, political and scientific platform. It's, you know, there's always going to be those um, raising their head about costs on something like that, isn't there, on any project. Because um, it was one of the few, one of the few upsides to the banking crisis is that, you know, before the banking crisis, if you'd said something's going to cost a billion pounds, everyone would kind of be horrified because it's such a large number. But then after, during the banking crisis, where we were hearing quite how much money was getting thrown at stopping the banks from collapsing and how much yeah. money was wasted in the process. Suddenly everyone was sort of, ah, what's one more billion pounds? <laughs> so it's actually one of the few upsides to the mess we made in the world's economy. Was actually, <laughs> you know, suddenly a billion pounds doesn't sound such a bad investment to actually yeah. learn something interesting about the universe rather than just to bail out another bank. Very true. And what we've seen kind of biggest uh, being... Uh, you know, thrown around at the minute in terms of, you know, just things like the furlough scheme and, and things scheme, like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the, the projects I know that you're a part of, I think it's a, a University of Nottingham project, is the 60 Symbols project, which is a, uh, I think it's just like a video project on, on YouTube yeah. and a website. So... Could you tell us a little bit about that and what the sort of idea behind launching that was? And aim, aims yeah, we, I mean, 
it's been incredibly successful. It's got, so 60 Symbols has about three quarters of a million subscribers. I think we're up to, I've lost track now, 40 million views or something. The original idea was we were going to make, the reason it's called 60 Symbols is we were going to make 60 videos about the symbols, the, the signs that physicists use. So for example, uh, we use the symbol C for the speed of light in physics. And so we're going to make a, sim uh, make a video about the speed of light, kind of around the symbol C. We quite quickly sort of lost track of that original, we kept the name, but the, the, everything else has changed in that there's about 200 videos rather than 60 now. Um, and they're not all about symbols. Occasionally we do one about a symbol, but we sort of ran out of symbols, but it turns out there's lots of exciting other bits of physics to talk about. The project sort of began because we were envious of the chemists. So the uh, chemists at the university under Martin Polyakov yeah. started a set of videos called periodic videos, where they made one video for every element in the periodic table. Um, and, you know, physicists don't like being beaten by chemists. So <laughs> if they can do it, then we ought to do it as well. The guy behind it is a guy called Brody Harron, who's the filmmaker, yeah. who at the time was working in Nottingham. He's since moved to Bristol, um, which means we tend to do things a little bit more remotely now. But at the time he was in Nottingham and he got involved with the university. He was actually employed to make a documentary for the university. And he, instead of making one big documentary, he thought it would be more fun to start making lots of little videos about little bits of science and the way scientists actually work. From that, this, the periodic video, the chemistry thing developed. And as I say, we kind of got brainstorming with him and said, well, you know, if they could do that, we can do this. And so we sort of developed this collaboration with him to make videos about physics. We got really lucky in that we just sort of rode away with YouTube in that YouTube at the time, so this was what, 2007 or thereabouts. And YouTube was really just sort of taking off in a big way. Um, and we got in at just the right moment. So that, you know, when we first started out, if one of our videos got a thousand views, we got really excited about it because you know, a thousand views. Now, if one of the videos doesn't get a hundred thousand views, we're kind of disappointed. It's like, <laughs> I was watching it. Um, but we, we sort of got lucky because we, you know, we, we hit it at just the right moment. Yeah. Um, and it's been a very fruitful collaboration. Brady is excellent at kind of both doing the interviews in the sense that he asks the questions that people really want the answers to. He kind of does the everyman thing of saying, you know, asking, drawing out the, the questions and stopping us from giving too technical answers and, and pulling us up and making to explain ourselves. But the other side of it is he's ex extremely good at editing them together to make really nice videos. Yeah. Um, so he always makes me look smart, much smarter than I actually am because he, he edits out all my ums and ers and doesn't put the bits in where I say stupid things and makes me look much cleverer than I actually am. Um, so we've been, you know, it's been really successful. It's won a few prizes now. We won a, a medal from the Institute of Physics for uh, the outreach and so on. Um, to be completely honest about it, we do it. I mean, you know, why do I do it? I do it partly because I enjoy doing it, um, partly because I'm funded by the taxpayer to to do what I do, and I kind of feel like I owe it to the taxpayer to, to tell them about it, to explain it, to you know, to, to put something back. Um, and also, as I say, to be completely honest about it, we do it partly because it advertises the fact that, that, that physics at the University of Nottingham is a thing um, and it's been really effective at attracting students. There's a lot of the students, you know, we, when we poll them about it, about half our students say it was one of the things that made them decide to come to Nottingham to do physics. So it's been kind of good from a, a, a fairly subliminal advertising. You know, we're never very blatant about telling people who oh, come to Nottingham, we're wonderful, but it's always kind of there in the subtext that they just start associating physics with Nottingham, which means that when they come to apply to university, they think, oh, I should go apply to Nottingham. 
Um, so it's sort of a little bit of advertising, but in a very, that very indirect way, not as a way of actually trying to sell your place directly. Excellent. I mean, I, I was having a look at some of the videos and uh, there's, like I say, there's a, there's a lot of great stuff on there and it's presented in a really good way, which is key because obviously one of the, the really difficult problems in, in, a, in a field like physics is being able to get things across in, as you said, sort of the everyman. You know, often often the physics, um, physician, you know, physics uh, scientists, etc., come under um, criticism for not being able to explain things, things being too technical that people can't understand them. Which you know, if that's what you're working in, is a difference between being a you know a scientist and being a, a PR person. Um, and I mean, I was sorry, I was reading something where they talked about. I can't remember it was, but they were talking about the fact that that leads to the problem that basically journalists often just take straight from a sort of hastily put together press release. And this is where we get these um, claims that some, you know, where we get these outlandish claims based off a study that hasn't really said that sort of thing. So Yeah, I mean, a lot gets lost in translation, right? Yeah. Because actually, you know, it goes typically... If we put out a press release about our research, we'll write it, but we'll go through our press office. They'll play with the language a bit and, and you know, typically dumb it down a bit. The journalists will then get hold of it and, and may not understand it. And, but actually, at the, I guess at the base of it all, there is this fundamental problem that for a lot of what I do, the most natural language in which to describe it is maths. Yeah. Just because that's, you know, that's sort of the natural language of mathematics. So anything else you do is sort of a, a shadow of that because you're trying to translate it into words where really you're dying to write down the mass and say, look, this is how it works. And it's always, you know, it's just even, you know, even if you're doing something as simple as translating from French into English, right, something gets lost along the way. Yeah. But actually, you know, French is much closer to English than maths. Is. <laughs> so actually, it's not so surprising that when you take what your complicated mathematics is and try to put it in words, it's very easy for the things to get lost and for the message to get garbled. Um, just because it's, you know, it's just not a natural way to be explaining. It's yeah. one of the things Brady does very well in those videos is he pulls us up and stops us from going into the maths. Because right? actually, that's what we want to do. It's like we're dying to write down the maths. <laughs> do it with words. Um, so, but it is, it is a challenge. It's an interesting thing. You know, I enjoy doing it. I do quite a lot of outreach things in one way or another, but it clearly is a very different skill. And some scientists just aren't very good at it. You know, some scientists are much better than me at the science side of things, but I'm not so good at the communication side of things. I'm kind of at the other end of the spectrum. I'm probably better at explaining things than I am at doing them in the first place. But there is, you know, it's a very different skill set. And scientists are typically selected for their ability to do science, not for their ability yeah, to do so and so actually it's not so surprising that quite a lot of scientists are really not very good at that side of things. Yeah, it's just, I think it feels like that's, it's become a more important, particularly in the age of the internet and social media, I mean, because we see now obviously so much uh, fear-mongering and false information yep. gets out there, you know, with regard to science. And, you know, the, obviously it's a lot more, it's very difficult to, to fight back against that in when you're obviously sticking to facts, but the facts are very complicated and like you say, built in mathematics and that makes it a lot easier for the people that do want to uh, stir the pot. You can just make outlandish claims without having to worry about, you know, actually backing them up. 
Um, oh, and, and so, and can, is, I mean, there is this, you know, there is this thing in science that there are always dissenting views, right? It's the nature yeah. of science, right? Not everyone agrees about things, and some people have, you know, slightly off the wall ideas. It's actually very healthy for science. They're almost certainly wrong, but it's good to kind of stress things, to push the boundaries, to see if I try something crazy, is it going to work? The trouble is that you're, you know, a lot of the people who have these kind of agendas, whatever it might be, denial of climate change or claiming you know, COVID is caused by 5G phone networks or whatever it is, they can always find somebody out there with yeah. those fringes of science who are perfectly good scientists because that's the nature, as I say, that's the nature of science, that you should have people who are trying out crazy ideas. Um, but they present, you know, if they present that as that's what, this is what science says, then it's very easy to get that distorted message. And there's kind of this, you know, th th this idea that they, they enjoy putting about that somehow, you know, science is not done by consensus, right? That consensus is a, is a dirty word, right? Scientists, you know, Galileo was going against the consensus and so on, you know, saying that, that this consensus about something is a really bad thing in science. Actually, it's complete nonsense, right? If science didn't have consensus on things, we'd never get anywhere because yeah. we have to have a basic framework we all kind of agree about within which we're working. And as I say, there are people, you know, who are outside that consensus who are trying to rip it apart. They have an important part to play in the whole process, but they're not the scientific process in and of themselves. They're just a part of it. And the, the, the mainstream consensus really is, it is important to say that, you know, when people say that 97% of scientists agree that humans are changing the Earth's climate, for example, that's an important fact, right? The fact that the overwhelming yeah. number of scientists actually have come, you know, have looked at this and come to the conclusion, yes, indeed we are. 3% disagree. And that's, as I say, that's healthy, that there are people who are trying to rip these things apart. But that doesn't mean really that the consensus is in a lot of doubt. Right? It might be wrong, but it's very unlikely that it is. Yeah. Such an overwhelming, strong body of evidence now suggesting that that is what's going on. Yeah, and that's why it's really frustrating when then when it's presented on in the media, where you have two people, one for and against, as if it's a balanced. Absolutely, uh, that, this concept of false balance is yeah. complete. And and social media is very bad for that, right? Because it's very easy to amplify whatever it is you want to do and you can just ramp it up as far as you like to make it seem as you know far more important yeah. far more mainstream than it actually is and there is this thing that you know you really shouldn't be taking you know 97 percent to three percent and when you've got the you know when you're just debating on on news night have one person representing the 97 percent and one person representing the three percent yeah because you do create this completely false view that there's you know there's a fairly balanced argument to be had when really there isn't yeah it's it's come up quite often in, in uh, conversations I've had with people uh, in different sort of uh, community groups, not, you know, we've talked to the Nottingham Pride group or, and we've talked to uh, the Next Gen Movement who deal with anti-racism. And one of the things that often comes up, obviously, is uh, the internet, as great as a platform it can be for information, it is the way it's built and the way social media is built is... As, as you mentioned earlier, you can always find something to support a view if you want to, but you can also find that it's so easy to make sure that's the only view you get. You know, you put the right things into Google and you will only get, you won't get a, a varied cover of the consensus, you will get the results you want to get. So it's almost like social media's uh, it offers a better platform for information than anywhere, but also offers a better platform for, um, I don't know, confirming your own bias, I guess. Is, 
Well, that's the thing, because, you, you know, you follow like-minded people on yeah. social media, right? And so actually you end up in this echo chamber thing that everyone agrees with you because they're the people that you listen to and who speak yeah. to you and who you speak to. So not surprisingly, you end up with the view, you know, that absolutely this is what everyone agrees with um, because that's that, you know, that echo chamber thing going on on social media. Having said that, you know, I'm a complete addict to it. I can't really yeah. it. I really can't. So I have seen I you recognise it's not a good thing. Um, you are you're very active on Twitter, especially that I've seen, and I, I so. yeah, and I've I've quite enjoyed. Um, you seem to take um, quite a lot of joy in pulling up. Um, I don't know if he's a former MEP. I guess I don't know if he still is. I think if you Roger Helmer, yes, who is I, I guess one of the as quite a prominent. I mean, he's probably part of the. You have to be to be allowed in UKIP, I guess, but he's quite a prominent climate change denier. And I was noticed, as well as obviously being against pretty much everything. But (laughs) he was not a fan. (laughs) But um, yeah, and I've I've quite enjoyed seeing some of the sort of responses. But I've noticed that anytime you put anything up that's sort of vaguely factual, he goes quiet quite quickly. It's the nature of it, right? Because actually he doesn't, you know, that's what he relies on in that he, you know, he makes a lot of noise and then relies on the fact that no one, you know, he will quite often make a statement about something where he will, you know, claim that some article says something or other. And if you actually go and read the article, it says something completely different, but he just relies on the fact that if no one looks beyond the headline, yeah. actually, you know, that his, his particular group will take what he says at face value because it reinforces what they want to hear. Yeah. And, and, so say, and so they'll, they'll come away with the impression that, oh, here's another piece of, e- piece of evidence that we're right. Whereas actually, it may well say something completely different, but no one ever bothers to dig into it at that level. So yeah, I do quite enjoy doing that. Yeah. I should say though, so a little while ago, the university did a, a, a thing for staff, a training session for staff about how to do social media as an academic. And I was invited along as one of the panel members for this. And it very quickly it dawned on me as I was going through this, that I was there as kind of the poster child for how not to do something. <laughs> Because I do all the things you shouldn't do. Right? Yeah. I rise to the bait. I can't resist digging in and you know pushing back against things. I can't resist arguing with people where there's clearly no point. You know, there's no point in arguing. Yeah. I'm not going to change his mind. This is, but this I, do, is why do I, I, I do it just because I kind of you know I guess I do it because I enjoy doing it. Right? I like that kind of pushback. I like that, yeah. that kind of argument. Um, but it's really it's not a healthy thing to do. And, and as I say, I think you know. If I were advising my colleagues what to do, basically it's anything other than what I do, because what I do is really not a good thing usually. After that, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I'm quite impressed that you've, you've been able to keep it going, because I, I used to be sort of quite like that. I'd often, you know, be commenting on uh, on Facebook and replying on Twitter, and I eventually got to the point where I realised that most of the time, all I was doing was I was it was making no impact on the people I was discussing it with because like you said they're not interested in they don't it doesn't matter how many links you put up to studies or anything they aren't interested they've made their mind up so all you're actually doing is all I find personally all I was actually doing was just getting more annoyed within myself and getting frustrated, more and more frustrated and I had, yeah, I actually yeah. had to start doing it and you also, you know, some of I realise that, you know, I'm part of the problem in that we talked about this idea of false balance, right? The fact that I bother to argue implies that there is an argument to be had. Mm. And so at some level, I'm sort of part of the problem. I mean, even, you know, there are places where I draw the line. So a, a while ago, I was asked 
by Radio Nottingham whether I go on to debate with a flat earther <laughs> on the radio. And there I draw the line, right? I'm not prepared to go on the radio to argue about whether the earth is flat. No. Just because, you know, it's silly and it, it really devalues science, right? Yeah. To, say, you know, to say that there was any sensible argument to be had about yeah. this. Well, that's um, it. The, the moment you go on as a, a professor of astronomy, you lead it, you're lending cre yeah. credence to that other person, no matter how ridiculous that view is, because they're saying, well, if a professor's willing to debate with them, and it must be something to it. Exactly. And, but at some level, I'm sort of guilty of that every time I have an argument with Roger Hellman. Right? Yeah. I'm adding, uh, adding credibility to the ridiculous things he says by suggesting that they're worth trying to argue again. Um, but I can't resist it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't know, it's it's I, I, I love like you i love social media but it it also terrifies me um i mean it's i find it some of the things i've seen around the covid i found quite scary <laughs> you know you know i i honestly i don't know maybe i was neither as a part of me at the beginning that thought you know maybe this seeing this happen and what it's done maybe we'll start to see the sort of death of this anti-vaxxer uh, conspiracy movement but it seems to have amplified it because they all think it's a bill gates led conspiracy to put chips in us so it's i don't know it's so crazy isn't it it's so obviously silly to anyone well i mean it's obviously silly to me but again that's just because of the circles i'm moving right? yeah. and actually if i were only talking to other anti-vaxxers then the whole thing suddenly makes a lot of sense I yeah well i mean the, the, the best response i saw to that when you know someone was actually saying this was about you know, putting these like monitoring chips in in the vaccine. Somebody said there's nothing they could put in one of these chips that would even compare to the amount of information they're collecting in the phones you're carrying around with you every single day. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. So I think some people just, I mean, I think part of the problem in science is, or not in science, is, is that science never has or generally doesn't have a definitive answer. It's always about why and finding out why and moving on the next step and particularly in medicine and health that can be very scary for people the idea why you know that you know the idea of why we get certain illnesses like that you know why this vaccines take is scary so if there's an obvious simple answer someone some people will be drawn to that because it's quite scary to know that we don't know something and might never know Something. And people, you know, people like to see patterns, right, is the other thing. Yeah. So the whole, you know, the connection between vaccination and autism, for example, you know, people yeah. like the idea, they like that, as you say, the cause and effect, they like to understand what's going on, they like to have some explanation for why bad things have happened. And being able to do that, I can, again, I can see why people get sucked into that whole thing. Um, and, and, you know, and that you know, has killed people, right? Because yeah. people avoided vaccination to, because, because of this completely... Uh, discredited picture that vaccination was in some way associated with autism. People don't take vaccination, suddenly things like measles and mumps start coming up again and people die of those things. Yeah. So they, they seem to have real, you know, it does have real consequences when people get sucked into this non-scientific view of the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, that, that, I, I, there's a lot of, like you say, there's a lot of these things going on, but I think that's, that's probably the one that makes me really, that really angers me that often. Um, just, I don't know. I guess that's because you're, you know, the people making those choices, they're usually making it for other people because they're making it for their children as opposed to themselves. But they're also putting, you know, there are children out there that cannot be vaccinated. They're either too young or they have 
you know, in, immunodeficiency illnesses or what, or other issues, and putting them at risk. So that, yeah, that's one that really gets. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the ones that I still do get involved in sometimes. <laughs> Good, um, yeah, and I, you know, you, you have to push back against those things, right? Yeah. Because, you know, as I say, the people are dying because, yeah. because the information is getting spread. Um, so going back to the 60 symbols, and as I said, I was looking at and I, one of the uh, the videos that I watched was uh, talking about the, the lockdown astronomy mm-hmm. project you've been doing and the telescope that you set up. Which yep. fascinatingly, in the, in the video, came out quite early on that it was the first time I think you'd ever had a an actual telescope at home. I think it was a, it a is, project yeah. you'd, you'd you'd backed on Kickstarter. Which I'm imagine anyone listening or you know or watching that video for the first time will be quite staggered because you would assume that you know you had like a loft full of them or <laughs> or something. But That's I guess work, right? yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't want to yeah. come home to it. I guess it's when you've been sat using. Um, you know, a telescope in the Canaries or, or wherever, in, and the, the best telescopes in the world, then it's, I guess it's a bit like them coming home and owning and having a little, it's, it's not the same thing, is it? You know, you've got access to the best telescopes in the world. Um, and plus, I mean, so I actually, I grew up in South London where the, you know, the skies are not great for astronomers. Yes. I'd never, until I actually went, first went to a professional observatory to, to, to do some some observations with one of the big telescopes. I'd never seen the Milky Way. Um, so I'd never really seen the sky. It had never, to be honest, it really hadn't appealed to me. You know, a lot of a lot of astronomers became astronomers because they were fascinated by astronomy when they were kids. I never really was. I, you know, I've always quite liked science. I was interested in physics. I, you know, I'd occasionally look through a telescope and seen the moons of Jupiter and the rings of Saturn, but that, that really was about it um, before I kind of started down the professional track in astronomy. So I didn't come from that kind of amateur fascination with telescopes and, and making observations. I'm not the most practical person in the world, so the idea of doing something like building a telescope or, or even you know fixing it when it breaks is not you know is a bit beyond me typically. Um, so again, that's a reason why I never really got into kind of the, the technical side of, of making observations myself until very recently because it's, it's just not not where my skills are. I'm not that practically inclined. <laughs> so. But you've got this one, the one that you've got set up now. I don't know, yeah. You've... So this was, uh, it was a kind of a fairly speculative thing. It was, as you said, it was a Kickstarter project. So if somebody was, was looking to crowdfund this idea they got to make an idiot-proof telescope. And I figured, well, you know, I'm an idiot when it comes to making observations myself. <laughs> so an idiot-proof telescope is just what I need. And so I backed it very early on. Um, and then it went very quiet, as Kickstarters often do, because, you know, you never know whether it's actually going to get off the ground or not. But they did raise all the money. They hit various technical problems to actually get the telescope made. Um, but they just thought they had just started shipping them, um, and mine co- coincidentally arrived just the week that lockdown started. So just <laughs> as we were basically, I was just as I was stuck at home, I suddenly had this telescope to play with, um, which was great. And I actually had you know, something to do other than sit around twiddling my thumbs and getting on with work at home. Um, so I really got quite into playing around with it. And I have to say, it really is as idiot-proof as advertised in that it figures out for itself where it's pointed in the sky. You just, it's controlled by a little phone app. You just tell the phone app, go, go here. You know, it's oh, wow. got a database of interesting objects in it. You can add your own if you want. Um, and it'll just take you anywhere in the sky uh, and take pictures. And so I have been playing around, you know, since sort of March, April time with this telescope. 
uh, taking pictures of the sky. It's been brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so I was watching, and obviously the um, pictures that um, you were showing in the video, so some of them which uh, you'd taken, and then you mentioned, obviously, that it's not necessarily prime conditions. Um, you know, you're in, the, you're in the middle of Nottingham. You've got your gardens quite heavily surrounded by quite large trees. Oh, yes. Over. So it's, I guess it's, it's quite an interesting uh, challenge as someone that's used to working with the best positioned and most powerful telescopes. Is it, I, I imagine there must be an element of frustration as well when, you know, considering what you're used to being able to... It's, it's I've, I've sort of enjoyed it. I mean, you know, occasionally just to annoy my wife, I threatened to buy a chainsaw so I can drop down <laughs> so I can actually get a decent view of the sky from, from my back garden. Um, but but actually, it's it is quite fun to actually do that little bit of planning while we're you know this, I can't see that bit of sky, but I can see that yeah. bit of sky. What's going to be in that bit of sky tomorrow night? So I can do that little bit of thinking about what I might be able to see. It is because the, the nice thing is because this telescope is so idiot proof, you really can just plonk it down and it will figure everything out and start taking pictures, which means that I can just move it around. You know, I put it down where I think it's going to be good and it lines up where it thinks the object is and it ends up pointing to the tree. And I can have to think, well, if I just move it to the right a bit, yeah. I'll miss that tree. So I can quite quickly, you know, because of the simplicity of using it and setting it up, actually find the objects that I'm looking for. Um, and it's, yeah, it's been part of the fun. And, and actually, you know, there's a lot of sky out there. So even though I can probably, from my back garden, I can probably see maybe a third of the sky or a quarter of the sky, something like that. But, you know, there's enough interesting objects out there that there's always one of them in that quarter of the sky yeah. that I can see. There's always something I can find to look at. Excellent. And that's, I mean, because I know, obviously, um, recently, or I think we might still be uh, we're in the midst of, I think it's the Perseid. Mm-hmm. Meteor, and I went out. I think it was there were a couple of days ago they were talking about it being one of the prime nights. Um, unfortunately, I went out and it, it was too cloudy, I couldn't. Yep, me too. That's uh, anything, which is really, yeah, very frustrating. And that's, that's yeah. one of the frustrations of astronomy is, yeah, you know, <laughs> welcome to my world is all I can say. <laughs> you're all set to do something and it's cloudy, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, and although Perseids are still on, so basically, for most of August, the Perseids are a really nice shower to see, you get to see a few shooting stars. They yeah. peak around the 12th when, you know, you'd see on, on a good night, you'd see one or two shooting stars per minute. But, you know, there's a few an hour for the rest of the month. So actually, there's an opportunity to get out and have a look for them. But yeah, I was out there and getting clouded out. The other thing that's been recently, and then, well, the other nice thing about first, uh, the meteor showers is you don't need any special kit at all to look at. No. You, don't yeah. want to you just want to go out and look at as much sky as you can. So the last thing you want to be doing is narrowing down with a uh, telescope. I always tell people the most important piece of observing equipment for looking at a meteor shower is a deck chair because you really just want something you can sit back in and look, see as yeah. much as you can. And actually for the winter winter meteor showers you need a deck chair and a duvet. It's blooming and chilly. You have to be out there for like half an hour. Yeah. Uh, you can spend quite a while out there. Because the other thing that's been recently is a comet as well because it was Comet Neowise um, which was really also quite a spectacular thing. I couldn't, again, my garden was not a great place for seeing it because there were trees in the wrong place. But I ended up on, up on Mapley Tops, and from there, there's a really nice view of Comet Neowise. Very beautiful comet, uh, now fading away again, but it was quite yeah. a spectacular view for, for a few weeks there. So there's always something new in this sky to see. Yeah, and it, it's, I guess, recent, well, obviously recently has been a good chance for people to get out and, uh, and have a look because things have been a bit calm. It's you know, slowed down as the world has a 
a bit, and is, yeah. obviously a lot it's less uh, air traffic as well than they had been until. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that there was quite a lot of talk earlier on in lockdown as people were saying the night sky looks a lot darker, right? And, and you know, they were seeing things that they hadn't seen before. And it is true, the sky was a little bit darker because, you know, all the sports stadium had turned off their floodlights and those kinds of things. So it was a little bit less light pollution, but not a lot, really. Like all the street lights were still on and so on. It was just that people had the time to look up. Yeah. And so they'd look up and they'd say, oh, I've never noticed that before. And they'd assume it was because it hadn't before. It was almost always just because they'd never actually had the time to look up before. Yeah. And so actually, yeah, a lot of people had a bit more time to actually look at the sky. It's really nice to do that. Yeah, there's just less distractions around, wasn't there? I mean, I know um, one of the things I felt like I noticed was like it is was bird song. It felt and, and it felt like there was a lot more of that, but it wasn't. There was a lot more. It's just there were not cars driving past, yeah. drowning it. There's no sounds drowning it out. So you get. I kept saying it sounded like in the middle of the day. It still sounded like if you got up at like five o'clock on a summer morning, yeah. because it was so, because everything was so quiet. You could hear nature. Um, so yes, it's you know an extreme way to go about enjoying nature. <laughs> it's slightly but, extreme way of doing it, yeah. Um, uh, which brings officers on to the the massive impact that uh, the, the COVID uh, outbreak and the lockdown has had. And you, you yourself obviously are a, a teaching professor at, at the university, mm-hmm. and we know you know um, schools, universities, like everywhere else, were massively impacted. Um, I know we've got obviously kids that you know haven't been to school since March September can't come soon <laughs> um, although I'm, I'm not I don't know how com- confident I am in the situation around that yet but where will be yeah yeah it, um, it was very fast yeah. the the, mo- the lockdown coming and uh, I know we, we knew it was coming you know we all we all knew it was going to come but even so it was a case of I think with schools it was like on a, they announced on a Tuesday they were shutting on a Friday or something like that and I, I guess it was the same for universities and things, or maybe yeah. possibly some universities had already taken the decision themselves um, yeah. so that, what was that process like because then you had obviously you didn't have a lot of time to try and adapt an entire new teaching very, system yeah very little time so at the time the other thing big thing I've been doing is I've been head of the school of physics and astronomy for the last six years so I was just coming to the end of my time six year sentence of being head of school um, and I was expecting a nice quiet wind down for the last six months so I actually just finished uh, end of July so I only just had that burden removed from me but I was expecting that last six months to be a nice quiet time you know we just go through the usual routine one last time and then I'll bow out quietly and somebody else can take over of course that wasn't what really happened and all, all hell broke loose um you're right we shut things down incredibly quickly the university shut down ahead of the schools um just because we could really see what was coming um and in fact my department was a bit ahead of the university and we were one of the first bits of the university that just pulled everything online and just said we can't be exposing students and our staff to this we've got to stop I guess the good thing from a university's point of view is it happened at a point in the year where most of the teaching had been done. It was still a bit, but actually we typically finish all our teaching before Easter. Um, and the, the bit after Easter was just revision the exams. So we were almost, you know, getting towards the end of teaching, which just meant we had to pull the last few bits of teaching online and then we had to do all the revision and assessment online. So it meant that we were able to do that. We have 
you know, we, we use lecture capture, so actually there are videos of all last year's lectures that we could use for the students. Um, we made ourselves available on Zoom and Teams and all the other various ways of actually video conferencing with students. We made sure we talked with our, so we have, you know, we run a tutorial system and perhaps that's the most important thing we did is we made sure that tutors were staying in touch with their tutees and just checking that everything was all right. Um, so we very quickly pulled that last bit of teaching online. Then the immediate thing we needed to think about then is how to do the assessment because we use very traditional exams to do the assessment and you know there was no way we could have invigilated two hour exams. So we completely changed the way we do the assessment. We wrote new assessments for everything. So instead of having a two hour invigilated closed book exam, we changed everything to you have a week to do this assessment, uh, completely open book. There's no point trying to tell people not to look up things because you know, they'll look up things. Yeah. So we ask completely different sorts of questions because you know you can't ask any question where you can easily find it on the internet, which and the internet says most things, right? So yeah. actually, it's quite hard to set questions where people can't just look it up. Um, but we changed it. We pulled it all the assessment online. Um, we did it. So we created these weak windows to do it in. Even though the work shouldn't, you know, there was no way, none of them were a week's work. But you could, the thing is, you can't, you know, if it's a two hour exam, you can't do it as a two hour thing because, you know, maybe the internet's down or you know, maybe they just can't work that particular, you know, that particular two hours. So then you think, okay, well, let's expand it a bit. Let's give them a day. Turns out 24 hours is absolutely the worst you can do. I actually did years and years ago when I was doing my PhD. Part of that, I had to do some exams for it. One of them was a 24-hour take-home exam. It's the worst exam I've ever done because you stay awake for 24 hours, right? You, mm. feel you have to keep working solidly for that 24-hour block um, because, you know, I might find an answer in the next half an hour, so I'll just stay awake for another half an hour and another half an hour and another, and so you know, 24 hours is bad. So in the end, we decided, okay, let's stop messing around. Let's give them a whole week because no one's going to stay awake for a whole week to do the work. And so it basically was a sort of two hours worth of work but in a whole week to do it in. Um, so we did that, we changed all the assessments. Obviously we had to do all the marking online as well. So we did all the marking electronically, um, which was a, another whole new thing to do. We finally, we got to the end of the year, we got the, the marks all out, we got the students graduated, we completed obviously they couldn't come to graduation. So we did some online ceremonies and so on. So we've done all that. But of course it hasn't stopped because now we've got to figure out what to do for next year. Yeah. Um, and so we're starting to think about how we're going to teach next year. Uh, it's clearly the, the buzz phrase for it is a thing called blended learning, which is, you know, some of it's going to be online, some of it's going to be in person, but it's got to be done in a rather flexible way so that if you end up in lockdown again, if there's another outbreak, then everything could just move online. But if things ease, we'll transition back yeah. and have things more kind of in person. So there's a massive work going on at the moment amongst my colleagues to figure out how to present things in this blended way, how to have some online stuff, some face-to-face -face things, some just done through Zoom, Teams, those kinds of things, some of them actually in-person teaching. Um, huge amount of work going on in that. And then of course, alongside that, we shut down the physics building. Um, so all research in the building stopped. We're now at the stage of opening things up back up again. Um, but doing it as, as safely and as carefully as we can. So we you know, restructured the building. Total occupancy we can have in the physics building is about 25% of what it usually is. So only a quarter of my colleagues are in work at any given time. We've kind of prioritized experimental stuff because people like me, astronomers, you know, I don't need a lab. So actually I can do most of my work from home. Mm -hmm. um, 
know, if I'm accessing the telescope in Hawaii, it doesn't matter if I'm doing it from here or from the office. Um, so most of our work we can actually do without being in the office. But if you're an experimental physicist, you need to have your kit. Yeah. Doing so we've prioritized getting the experimentalists back in. Um, so the building is now back up and running again. Turns out there are a whole slew of things you need to worry about. For example, are some of the things that hadn't occurred to me. For example, if you shut down the building for three months, you can't just send people back in again because it's quite likely that the water systems will have Legionella in them. Um, and because they haven't been turned on, you know, the water hasn't been flowing. So there's all sorts of safety stuff you need to yeah. do to reopen the building once it's been shut for a long period. But anyway, we've been through that now, so the building is now open again, things are working again. So my last six months, as I say, where I was expecting a nice, gentle kind of move to, to stand aside and let my successor take over, it turns out I've been by far the busiest six months of my whole time as head of school. Um, but I think we are sort of getting there. The great un unknown, the great uncertainty is what's going to happen this autumn because, you know, if things really kick off again and we end up back at square one lockdown, we might end up having to shut the building again. The students might end up learning everything online again. At least we'll be a bit better prepared to do it because we'll have had time to prepare yeah. material which was really intended to be delivered that way. But it's not, so, you know, it's not the same experience from their point of view, either socially as a student, but actually academically in terms of learning, it's hard to learn this way. So yeah. students are going to find it very hard to do, I think. Um, yeah, and it's, but we'll support them as best we can. It's not just the case of, either. it's not just the fact that, you know, it's not just a simple case of taking it and saying, well, you can do it from online from home. But then obviously, there's the, everyone's got a different uh, home situation. You know, I, I imagine some, I don't know, but some students have probably had to go back to different parts of the country. Uh, you know, they may be in. You know, they might. We don't. They might be living in homes where they. You know, a family are sharing uh, computers. So you well, can't just internet be sad. Access, right? no, internet. Internet. Um, yeah. You know, schools have shut down, so they might be going back to a home where they've got, you know, young family members that are, you know, running around. And you know, I know, as, uh, as I say, I'm. I've been working from home, which is something that you know, I did sort of a couple of times a week anyway. So I was, so it wasn't a like completely new, but the difference in full-time working from home and having the school shut and trying to do it in homeschooling is yeah. compared to what it was before. It has, has been just, yeah, it's been an interesting experience. Um, Hopefully, one we won't ever go through again. But, no, uh, but uh, um, I mean, personally, I mean, in terms of of schools and and university and colleges, I think the way the speed and the way that 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 adapted over generally has been have been quite staggering, really. We tried. I mean, we really get, get, gave it our best shot. But I mean, the other the thing that I'm continually reminded of is so. The, the experts in teaching this way at the open university, right, at my level, university level, open university have taught this way forever, right? That's how they work. A number of years ago, the OU got very keen on the idea, actually when the new student fees came in, they got very keen on the idea of, well, why don't we start teaching 18-year-olds this way? You know, typically they teach mature students. And they thought, well, this is a real opportunity because there's new fees and actually we can do it cheaper than traditional universities can, so we can offer them a slightly lower fee level and we'll get lots of undergraduates this way it fell flat on its face because it turns out, you know, the average 18 year old is not in a position to learn that way. 
it takes an awful lot of kind of self-discipline and that sort of you know being able to create your own structure for learning to, to learn the way the OU works, which works very well for kind of you know mature adults who've got time on their hands, who've developed to the point where they really can do all that stuff. But 18-year-olds are just not set up to do that. And so to, to throw them into that world all at once, you know, it, it's just never going to really work. And so we're still, I think, facing up to that, that actually we're, you know, we'll do the best we can, but really it's not the ideal way to be teaching undergraduate students, 18, 19 year old undergraduate students, because it's not the right environment. It doesn't have the right structure to help them learn. Um, as I say, we just have to do the best we can, but I think we have to accept the fact that it's never going to be as good as the traditional way that we've taught in the past. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's not only that, but for, for young students at university, it's not just about the actual learning and the studying. It's, it's, an, it's a life experience going to university yes. at that age. It's the independence it brings for a lot of people because they, it's the first time they move away yeah. uh, from their home. It's about developing new uh, friendships, connections, networks, and, and you know, it's, it's that first real step into the adult world. And you don't get that, obviously. Like you say, it's a different thing. Um, you know, I'm doing an OU degree at the moment, but I'm a, like you say, I'm a, I'm a mature student with a day job and a family. It suits me perfectly. Yeah. But I couldn't have done that at 18. I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have come home and spent two hours or whatever it is a, a day doing that at the end of the day at home at 18. No, absolutely. And you can't. And as you say, actually, you know, and the two aren't really separate, right? That actually the, the, the skills that the students acquire socially while they're students are actually a big part of how they work academically as well. You know, they work with each other, they collaborate with each other, they, they you know, set up their own study groups, they work together. There's just a kind of a, a vibe that goes around because, you know, the person next to you is working hard on something, so you work on it as well. You need that kind of social structure to get the academic side to work properly as well as the social side. So I think, we, you know, we are going to have some serious challenges to actually help the students engage with a process which is going to be nowhere near as kind of simple and clear cut as it was in the past. Exactly. And obviously these are people that, earn, you know, the effects of this are, are massive, you know, in terms of, I mean, obviously we're seeing now, in fact, today, as, as we're talking, we're seeing the out, um, the release of the A-level results and yep. they've not gone down very well. Uh, it's a mess, isn't it? yeah. it's, and I mean, I know this is a difficult and unprecedented situation for everybody, you know, from the schools, the universities, the students, the, the people marking it. But like everything else so far, it doesn't seem to have been handled very well and doesn't seem to have been communicated. And we're talking about um, people's lives, here, you know, the shaping their futures. So it's, I don't, it's, you know, that's something that six months ago, then no, no one even imagined, well, maybe a bit longer, but it was only, you know, yep. at the end of the yep. end of last year, it didn't, it wasn't on anyone's radar, was it? Anything like. It wasn't, and I guess, you know, it was, although the A-level results thing, it's a mess. It's, it could have been handled better, but not a lot better, right? In that it was always going to be, 
you know, you can, in a statistical sense, you can probably get it right, right? You can end up with a set of grades that look kind of like last year's grades. And so you can say, look, you know, no one, you know, at yeah. least as a cohort, they haven't been disadvantaged because look, they're getting the same kind of grades that last year's students got. But that doesn't help any individual student who's been told actually, you know, in order to get that distribution right, we've taken what your teacher said you were going to get and we've shunted everything down by two grades. Right. And that's, you know, I can, for the individual, it's never going to be fair because it's like, but actually I was doing much better than that. And yeah. I'm the exception. I've really pushed it. You can correct the averages and make it look right superficially, but for every individual, you know, there are going to be many tragedies because the, each individual is just treated in this very broad brush way, which has very little nuance associated with it. So it was always going to be a complete mess today. Um, but I, I suspect I, it looks like they've made it a bigger mess than it needed. Yeah. I think one of the things that feels like, and I think the same thing happened uh, Scotland, is it, it's been, it's felt very, very much like, again, the sort of, uh, the less affluent people have taken the brunt of the hit um, in terms of where things have been marked down and, um, it's, it's, I think there's a there's a lot of I think there's been a lot of anger around that. It, uh, I think I saw that the sort of um, I guess what you'd call the 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 top schools they they've all a lot of them have had their had their averages pushed up. Yep. Uh, while the the state schools were the ones that got their marks pushed down, um, which obviously just feeds into that feeling again that they're looking out for themselves in. Uh, at yeah, the top, I mean, it's, it's, there's something. I mean, so uh, w one of my other previous hats uh, within the University of Nottingham is I was the admissions tutor for physics for many years. So I've read an awful lot of UCAS forms of university applications, and I've read the statements written by teachers and their predicted grades. And it is true that the vast majority of teachers are, how should I put this, somewhat optimistic about how their students are going to perform. And I, I sort of understand why, right? They think, you know, if they say that the student's going to do well, it means we're more likely to make an offer because, they, you know, he's clearly a good student. Plus, actually, there is always that, you know, I, when I'm teaching myself, I always want my students to do better every year than they've done in the previous year because that, yeah. at some level, reflects on me, right? That says I've done a really good job of teaching them. So clearly the grades are going to be better this year than last year because I'm getting better at teaching. So there is always that pressure to, to, to push, you know, what, where you think the grades are going to be. So it's not so surprising overall the grades got moderated down. The, the devil, though, is in the, in the detail as to whether or not it was done fairly. I understand that the, the rule book that they use for figuring this out is 150 pages long and they haven't published it. Right? So no one really knows <laughs> what went on behind the scenes. And I think that's a large part of what the anger and disquiet is about is it looks like there was this secret process and some people did very well out of it and some people did badly out of it. And as we were discussing earlier, you know, immediately when you have that kind of situation, conspiracy theories appear, right, as to what was going on, what the agenda was. And until they're very transparent about what it is that they've done, there's always going to be that sort of, yeah. you know, people think something was going on, that there was something going on behind the scenes that wasn't right. Yeah. Um, but, but there was no right, there really wasn't a right answer for this process, right? It was such a mess to start yeah. with, there was no one got it. And it, and Scotland, it means, you know, the Scottish solution is worse, right? The Scotland, they've done, basically, they've tried to do that. There was such an outcry that they've said, actually, you know what? We're just going to take what the teacher said. And overnight, the grades went up by 15%, right? 15% more people passed all their, their higher exams. 
and that's worse, right, in some ways, because it means that everyone's sort of happier because they've got grades, but then no one's going to take those qualifications seriously, right? Because anyone who looks at somebody's CV and sees, actually, this person got a B in, in 2020 in their Scottish qualification. Oh, that was the year when anyone could get a B. Yeah. So actually, they haven't done, you know, anyone any favours by doing that because they just devalued the qualification. So I think, you know, I'm not trying to make out that anyone's done anything better than anybody else. I think the only argument I'm making is that there is no right answer. Right? There's no yeah. way to get them right because you're going to annoy people, whatever it is you do. Do you think it raises questions over, and it, it, we've pushed back towards this, over so much emphasis being on the final exam? Because that was it, something... It, it clearly does, right? Because the Welsh yeah. are in a better position, right? Because the Welsh kept AS levels so that they've actually got a set of qualification, you know, a set of exams that the students have already done that they can base things on, um, and so suddenly they look much smarter for keeping their AS levels. Um, but again, it's you know there's kind of the swings and roundabouts in that as well, right? In that one of the problems we've had at university in the past is that students aren't used to retaining things in their minds anymore. They're used yeah. to learning them just long enough to pass this month's exam and then moving on to the next thing. And particularly in a subject like physics, where everything builds on everything else, it means that things that you learned in the first year are actually really important in the third year, because suddenly you're going to have to dredge that information up to solve some third year problem. Um, and so actually, there are, from our perspective, although there are downsides to basing things on kind of exams after a longer period, there's an upside as well, because it does mean people are forced to, to exercise their brain in a way that retains information, retains knowledge, retains understanding for a longer period. Um, so again, this is one of those things, there's no right answer, right? That, that there are upsides and downsides to any way you might choose to do things. Yeah. Um, and there was an upside to doing away with having you know, so many tests along the way, but now we're paying the price because actually it means that, that, that they've got nothing to go on when they're trying to figure out what the grade should be. It's going to be interesting to see what, in, what impact what's happened this year has on, um, on the education sector as a whole moving forward. And be, you know, um, I mean, do you think it's going to change the way universities teach? I know, I know, it obviously is going to for for some time, um, but it's it's one of them things where you wonder, as people get used to that, is that going to become the norm? Even as things get back to whatever the normal is, I honestly don't know. This is your answer. It could be. I think it could go either way, right? This could be the start of a whole change to a much more technology-driven way of learning. Or it could be that actually people are going to be so sick and tired of doing face-to-face -face by video conference that they're going to say, you know what, I never want to do that again. I want to be in a nice big lecture theatre full of students. And, yeah. and I honestly don't know which way it's going to go in the longer term. It could be either way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can say from a personal point of view that I've, I'm, I'm, I've always thought, you know, oh, the idea of working from home, I love it, it's great. But there is a part of me now that would certainly wouldn't mind getting to go back into the office at least once a week um nice, i mean it? yeah i mean it might maybe that will be obviously that's been it's it's a different situation as i say working from home when you've got to take into consideration the lockdown which has meant everybody's stuff at home including schools being shut um, i'm used to working from home and being on you know being the only one in 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 the property <laughs> yes. and it being quite easy to just get on with a job so it's of you know it's a you, it's, you can't look at this like a normal you know but actually situation. i think one of the things we're really missing when we've been thinking about 
both from the teaching side, but actually from the research side as well. You know, I've been discussing with my fellow astronomers at the university how we're going to run things next year. Now we're starting to open the buildings up and so on. And one of the things that's really missing is that a big part of the way that academic research works is just by informal chats over lunch, right? That actually mm. you know, you're talking about, and you know, like everybody else over lunch, we'll talk about last night's football or what was in the news or whatever it is. But, but you know, once in a while, science will come up and somebody will say, oh, I'm trying to figure out this. And somebody else will say, oh, I was working on a problem very similar to that a few years ago. Those kind of casual conversations where a lot of things get solved don't happen at the moment no. because there, isn't, you know, there are no mechanisms for having casual chats. Everything's done in this very structured, formal way where you have to do things in this much more kind of, you know, restrictive way of having your conversations. And I think probably the biggest place we're missing out is that, that bumping into somebody in the corridor and accidentally finding things out <laughs> isn't happening anymore. And yeah. that's a big way, part of the way, as I say, it's part of the re way research works, but actually it's the way we find out what's going on in the university, for example, is just somebody yeah. mentioned over coffee and, and word gets around. And those kinds of things don't exist at the moment. Those informal social networks are really struggling. And I think we're really going to see that pay a price for the fact that we haven't got those informal communication mechanisms. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a, a, a difficulty when it comes to any our time with any problem that that one person can't solve on their own so there's def there's definitely i've no you know i miss that all being able to gather around a screen and bounce the ideas off each other in like in a way you, like you can't you can't do that on google chat and you can't even really do it in a conference call no it's very different. It's, yeah. yeah so um i'm gonna wrap things up soon it's, it's been great <laughs> chatting to you and obviously um but there's a, just a couple of things. I want just to go back to the, in terms of sort of tied into what we've been talking about here. One of the videos that I did watch, which I think is probably one of the most recent ones you've put up, was a sort of virtual debate between yourself and a colleague about um, whether lecture is uh, dead. I think you, you were the, no, it's not. And your colleague, uh, he was he was arguing that it, sort of was or needed to change which i thought was fascinating and obviously at this time it is such more i guess that's why you did it because this is a time when if it is going to happen it might happen at the moment yeah. um, but like you said that there's something about that communal get together what what sort of focused my mind on this is this the discussion of this goes back a few years when we first started introducing lecture capture right? when we first started videoing our lectures and making them available to students and some students take the view of you know it's nine o'clock it's a cold february morning i'm going to stay in bed because i can just watch it on youtube later on today um i have a real problem with that from an educational point of view right for a start they probably won't watch it they'll find something more interesting to do but even if they do get around to watching it, it's a very different experience watching a YouTube video than from being yeah. in a lecture. You know, typically, I mean, I watch YouTube videos, but when I'm watching a YouTube video, I might have the telly on in the background, I'll be making myself a cup of coffee, I'll be chatting to the family, and the YouTube video will just be playing. Whereas if you go to a lecture, you know, you've got nothing else to do for the hour, you've kind of made a commitment to be there, you're surrounded by a whole bunch of other students who hopefully are also focused on the lecture, which means there's kind of that atmosphere of concentration, which you get kind of drawn into. That. Yeah. 
and it's a live thing you know it's like the difference between watching the telly and going to the theater it, it is a different experience and, and actually from a lecturer's perspective from my perspective i get feedback from the students right i really do even in a large lecture where there's like 200 students i get this is, you can tell when you're saying something that they're not understanding because you know and it's hard to put a finger on exactly how i know but I know when I've lost the attention of the students and maybe, you know, some of them are a bit blatant about it and they get their phones out or whatever it is, you know, but actually even when they're not, you can kind of tell there's something about the atmosphere, which means you can take a step back and you can stop and you can say, Oh, I've explained that really badly. Let me try yeah. that again. You can do that in, a, even as I say, even with really big lectures, you don't have that with YouTube. You know, I've been rec recording some little clips and things for teaching for next year, just experimenting to see what works. And there's things I can do, you know, there's ways I can record video clips for them and all that kind of stuff. But I don't have any of that feedback. I'm very aware that I'm looking into a camera rather than looking at an audience. Yeah. And I don't get that kind of feedback. So I think, personally, I think that that kind of live interaction has a lot of future to it. It's not the only thing, you know, we can't just talk at students, right? That we have to do other things as well. And we do do other things as well, right? We have workshops where we get them solving problems, where we go around and help them when they're stuck on those problems. We have tutorials in smaller groups, all sorts of other ways of interacting with the students. But but actually, I think lecturing still has a significant role in that. And I don't think that that videos are going to replace that. So going back to what we were talking about before, about whether we'll go back to where we were, I think we'll probably move back. You know, things will change, but I think there will still be lectures yeah. just because it's a, it's a completely different way of learning that we don't really have any replacement for at the moment. Yeah, I guess one of the big issues obviously at the moment is it's going to be, you know, a considerable time before he, even if lectures are able to, to start up again in the new year, you're going to be looking at, you know, what, 10% of the people being able to be in the hall. Um, it looks like it, yeah, actually you know, trying to get people two metres apart, you know, it's yeah. going to be hard. Plus actually, you know, the thing that people don't think about is even if you can position people in a lecture, you have to get them in and out. Yeah, I think that's um, that's... Because even in the hall, you can you can put obviously uh, social distancing measures in place. You can you know you can have mask wearing within the halls. But as you say, it's the you know people piling across the the grounds or down the corridors and and how you manage that and and public transport. I mean, I've I've already Absolutely. seen that the trams are um just people aren't following the guidelines on that anywhere near as much as they should already. No. So, you know, particularly yeah, now. Yeah. Personally, personally, I think the only real hope we've got for sorting all this out is a vaccination. Yeah. If a vaccine comes along and suddenly, you know, we don't have to worry about social distancing anymore, I think we can return to a fairly old normal quite quickly. Yeah, I think that's yeah. yeah. I just don't know. Really the speed at which the work's <laughs> yeah. going on with vaccine is really impressive that, that actually they're all, you know, the trials they're at already I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, you know, I was hearing on the news today that the crazy Russians have actually already do, have got a vaccination yeah. already. That's scary, right? Because they clearly haven't done the appropriate. Well, I think that's the that's the concern, isn't it? And I'm, I'm, I have the same worry with um, um, America in terms of Trump's desperation to get one out before the election. Yeah. Um, I think that I, you know, I mean, but then obviously I think uh, we've got is it Cambridge. They're obviously quite advanced. Uh, yeah, there's, lot, I mean, there's, I there's, there's about three vaccines so in this country. So yeah. actually, I think you know, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be pleasantly, you know, it would be a pleasant thing, but I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a vaccine available by the end of the year. It's, it so is. Actually, it would be good. 
staggering for a you know for a virus that was only what mapped in January yeah. and handed out in January that and you know when you consider the way viruses mutate and spread and speed that this it's so amazing how quickly the science has moved on it yes. um, you know it's, it's it's you know everything about this is just something that we've never seen before I've, I've never you know I've, it, although I know from my understanding that you know experts in the field have been predicting a pandemic outbreak for about 20 years um, but for it to happen at the speed it does, but like you say, for the science to move at the speed it has, vaccines normally take five years to get to trial, something mm-hmm. like that. So, you know, it's it's been, 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 yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's following the science of it's been fascinating during this time. The rest of it, not so much. But, no, the rest we could do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I'm, some, some of the, you know, not having to go out and things has been quite relaxing. And it maybe early on, it's, <laughs> it wore it wore thin quite quickly. Yeah, um, before I let you go, obviously, like we said, we talked about your your field is astronomy. That's where you work, and as well as teaching, you obviously work in the research yourself a lot. And it, it's obviously a huge field. And as you've talked about, fast moving. You know, even in the time you've been working in it, we've gone from no exoplanets to like thousands of them. But and uh, obviously, you're talking about that the giant to ELT satellite mm-hmm. but I'm wondering are there is there a what is it is there a something that's been looked at or you can see coming that's really excites you like the thing that excites me most I reckon we'll we will find life elsewhere in the universe in a matter of years at most yeah. and I think there are, you know there are various routes to this right there, there are the various Martian missions I think there's every prospect there's life on Mars um, and so I think probably they will find it. It's not going to be very exciting life. I suspect it could well be bacterial or, or you know, just fossilised remnants of things from when Mars was a much more pleasant place to live. Yeah. Um, but there's that side of things. And actually, so getting back to my big telescope, the ELT, so I say my big telescope, the, world, <laughs> uh, the big telescope, the ELT, one of the kind of, I think probably the single most exciting piece of science that it will do is not only does it have the ability to directly image planets around other stars, so we'll be able to look at you know, the places where we've inferred the planets, we'll be able to take pictures of them and see those little, little planetary systems. But actually there's enough light being reflected from the star off the planet and to us that we'll be able to analyze the atmospheres of those planets and be able to look for these things called biomarkers, the molecules you only yeah. get when there's life. So things like ozone, for example, there's ozone in the Earth's atmosphere, because there's oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere and it's oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere because there's life that's kind of liberating it from CO2 and turning it into oxygen. So things like ozone, these biomarker molecules, I think in, on the timescale of that telescope coming online, so 10 years, that kind of timescale, we're going to be able to say, okay, so there's another star, there are the planets going around it, and that one there has life on it. So I think that's that's probably the single most exciting thing I'm looking forward to yeah. is finding life elsewhere in the universe, which I think that will, will happen. It will be incredible. I mean, years. I think it, I mean it, it seems mathematically um, implausible that it's not out there, doesn't it? Um, it does. But, you know, one of the things, yeah. probably the most important lesson we've learned in astronomy is we're never as important as we think we are. Yeah. You know, we used to think that the Earth was the center of the universe, then we learned actually you know, it goes around the sun. 
We used to think that the sun was the only sun, then we learned it's one of billions in the Milky Way. We used to think that Milky Way was the only galaxy, then we learned there are billions of those as well. One of the lessons we keep learning in astronomy is we're really not as special as we thought we were. And so I think probably the next aspect of that is actually even learning that life itself is not quite as rare and special as yeah. we think it is. Yeah, I hope you're right, because that, that would be uh, really exciting. But I think it's, it seems to be something new and exciting comes up all the time. Um, yeah, I wonder what, I wonder what's next, like I say, obviously with there being a push to get back out there as well. Yeah, lots uh, of discoveries you know, done. Yeah, yeah, with the private, obviously, we've, we've just seen the, um, the SpaceX capsule returning safely, so that's obviously a huge step towards expanding. Uh, yeah, I think we're not that far from sending people to Mars as well. That's probably, again, on a sort of 10-year type time scale, though somebody yeah. will go to Mars. Might be, could well be the Chinese, but somebody will get to Mars on that kind of time scale. <laughs> So a massive thanks to Professor Merrifield Dev for taking time to speak to us. I, I found that discussion fascinating, you know, both the astronomy side of it and the discussion about how Nottingham University has dealt with the uh, coronavirus lockdown things and, and what may come next uh, and things like that. So fascinating discussion there. I really enjoyed it. I hope you all enjoyed it just as much. Uh, maybe it's given you a newfound uh, temptation to go out and look into the night sky, you know, and see what's up there. It's a big, big universe and it it feels like it keeps getting bigger and uh, sometimes it can be quite nice to take a bit of a break especially with everything that's going on and just have a look up uh, in the sky and uh, and there we go so that's uh, the end of that episode but next week on ng meets i'm chatting to debbie clark debbie clark is a a business strategist and podcast host who runs debbie doodah an award-winning uh, business management firm and it was a great chat today about how she got started the work she's done there and again we talked a lot about how the coronavirus has impacted both her work and the the uh, work of the people that she the work the different businesses that she works with and the entrepreneurs that she works with so be sure to tune into that next week you know, we've got more guests lining up uh, we'll announce them soon we're recording more this week uh, we've got some more in the bag Again, we're closing in on episode 15. We're still working on putting that episode together. Uh, in the meantime, you can check out all past episodes of NG Meets at ngdigital.podbean.com. Uh, and you can find us on you know the usual podcast apps, whether it's Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Spotify. Uh, give us a like, follow, subscribe, give us a review. Please spread the word. If you've got any science-loving friends, I'm sure they'll love this episode. You know, uh, maybe some some of the younger listeners will be interested. Maybe people who have, have shown an interest in maybe looking at to at getting into astronomy at university. Maybe they can have a listen to this and also check out the Sixty Symbols YouTube account for some fantastic videos, which we talked about in the episode. Uh, but that's all for me for now. Thanks again for listening. 
hope you're all staying safe. Hope you're all taking care of each other. Hope you're all wearing your masks when you go shopping. And uh, we'll be back next week. But for now, this has been NG Meets with Michael Merrifield. Goodbye.